Father, may the words that we just sang truly be the cry of our hearts, that you would show us Christ, that you would reveal your glory this morning in the preaching of your word. And we confess, along with the disciples, there is nowhere else that we can go. You alone have the words of eternal life. May your word speak to us this morning. May our hearts be changed. May we all confess that Christ is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. If you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 31 and 32. For the last 23 years, audiences have been mesmerized by the greatest movie trilogy of all time. And for those of you who are not great at math, uh, that would be since 1995, okay? So that excludes the real Star Wars trilogy, right? We won't talk about the other one, right, Sam? <laughs> that also excludes Lord of the Rings, it excludes Indiana Jones, and sadly, it excludes Back to the Future. I'm talking about Toy Story, okay? Toy Story 4 is coming out next year, right? So, big news. Little boy, Andy, right, and his toys that come to life. Andy has his favorite little cowboy, Woody, right? And then, for, I think it's his birthday, he gets... Buzz Lightyear, right? The Space Ranger. And then Buzz and Woody start to go at it, right? Who's the favorite? And all this drama ensues. They're battling out all these silly little squabbles. And they continually get themselves into trouble, right? They're always getting into trouble. And that leads to these rescue missions that need to happen, right? Rescues, rescue missions from toy stores, rescue, rescue missions from daycare centers. And it's just this intense toy drama, right? And we might kind of snicker at that, but this isn't just a story about toys and not just a story for kids, right? I think as adults, there's something in these stories that we need to pay attention to. I think we miss something if we don't really pay attention to the storylines that are going on in these movies. Just like Buzz and Woody, right? We need to be rescued from the messes that we get ourselves into, in our own lives. And we don't just need to only be rescued, we also need to be restored to communion with our Father. We are helpless to rescue ourselves. We've been in Genesis, we've been looking a lot at the life of Jacob, and I said this week a few times, I said it in our community group, and I said to a few other people, I'm ready to be done finally with Jacob. Um, but actually, we're not really done with Jacob. Uh, we're kind of moving on. The focus is going to be on Joseph, really, for kind of the rest of Genesis. But we're not really done with Jacob. We're looking at Jacob and his sons and how all of these things are going to be playing out. And this chapter, chapter 37, is really foundational for understanding the rest of Genesis. So we really need to grasp what's happening in this chapter so that we can kind of faithfully read the rest and go through the rest of this book. If you're taking notes there, if you have the the outline, 
you want kind of a big idea of the message today, it's that our sovereign God, in his mercy, rescues his people and restores them to communion with himself. Our sovereign God, in his mercy, rescues his people and restores them to communion with himself. And this is kind of a summary of the whole Jacob and Joseph narrative. And this is going to lead us into the book of Exodus. So really from chapter 37 on, this is foundational for kind of understanding the journey of God's people really throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. We're going to see in this story a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Joseph is going to go down into Egypt. He's going to provide for the famine, provide for all the nations during this famine, and all the nations are going to be provided for through Jacob and, or Joseph and his family, Jacob and his sons. And so we're going to see God's sovereign hand at work throughout this whole story. And again, what we see here today is very foundational for that. I would encourage you over the next couple weeks, if you have time, to, to take some time to read through this whole, uh, this whole section, chapter 37 through chapter 50. You don't have to do it all at once. Uh, but some encouragement if you do want to do it and make it easier. Uh, the ESV Bible app on the phone has, uh, has the audio that you can play. So I actually did this a couple days ago. I just I played it and, and read through as he read. And so I didn't have to do the, the, all the hard work of reading. But 70 minutes, okay? 70 minutes. Not too long. 14 chapters, 70 minutes. Uh, it's good to kind of get a picture of this whole story and everything that's going on so we can kind of see where we're going. So would encourage you, you know, maybe just 15 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day for the next week, whatever. Um, take some time for that. All right, well, we're going to look at this in two parts. We're going to look at uh, verse 1 through 11 first. Uh, we're going to read that, and then we're going to read verses 12 through 36 in a little bit. So let's go to the text. Uh, Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. If you're following along with the outline, the first section is Joseph gets himself into a mess. 
And now there's actually a lot of debate here about this, um, about Joseph in these, these early stages of the story, whether he's kind of being a brat, uh, whether he's prideful in the telling of these dreams. Uh, some commentators think that. Other commentators think Joseph is, is trusting God and being righteous. Um, and we're not really told. The narrator, Moses, doesn't really tell us exactly. There's no statements here or anywhere else in the Bible about Joseph's character in this. Um, but we know Joseph is a sinner, obviously, right? He's a sinner, and there's a lot of family drama, and there's a lot of family sin that plays into these dynamics. So I don't want to get into too much about whether Joseph was right or wrong in these things, but we, we're seeing the effects of sin in this family. We're seeing all this drama kind of play out here. It begins with reminding us, going back to the previous, that Jacob, he's living in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And then it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And as we've been going through Genesis, we've seen this line, these are the generations of. And it usually lists the father of the person that the story is going to be about. So it lists Jacob here. The story is going to be about Joseph. Then we're introduced to Joseph here. He's 17 years old. He's out shepherding the flocks with his brothers. It's, these are his half-brothers. There's actually four brothers here that are with him. And then Jacob bring, brings a bad report to his father. Joseph brings a bad report to his father, Jacob. Uh, and this is kind of the, the question of, you know, what is going on here with Joseph? Is this, is this report, is he wrong in doing this? The, the word actually that's used here for bad is the word evil, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3 or in Genesis 6 where before the flood when God looks down and says that the thoughts of men's hearts are always evil continuously. It's that word. So, and there's, there's some connections with slander here. So, it may be that Joseph is, maybe he's saying what's true, but what are his motives? Is he doing it for the right reason? So, that's kind of some of the question marks there. So, that bad report, and then we see his father's favoritism. He comes with this report, and then Israel, in verse 3, loves Joseph more than any of his other brothers because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, this robe here is, is probably not actually a multicolored robe. It just means it's a, it's a long robe that comes all the way to his wrists and all the way down to his ankles. It was a robe that royalty would have worn, and it's used in other places in Scripture to kind of hint at that. It's, it's like a royal robe. Um, and there's a lot of kind of meaning that comes along with that. Uh, basically, we're told in First Chronicles 5 that Reuben, uh, which we didn't cover this last week, but in the second half of chapter 35, Reuben lays with Jacob's wife, uh, the Rachel's servant, Bilhah, and we're told in, in 1 Chronicles 5 that the birthright was taken away from Reuben, who is the oldest, because he slept with Jacob's wife, okay? And then it's given, the birthright is given to Joseph. So Joseph is the youngest. Joseph receives the birthright, and there's this favoritism that the brothers feel because he gets this robe, this kind of royal-looking robe, while the other brothers are out working in the field, he's wearing something that working people wouldn't have worn. They would have worn something that was short-sleeved or shorter at the knees. And so Joseph is kind of in this favored position. And then verse 4, when the brothers see that he was favored, loved more by his father, they hate him. Okay, And this is going to play out through the rest of, of this chapter. They hate him, and it says that they cannot speak peacefully to him. The word for peace there, peacefully, is shalom. 
That was the, the greeting word in Hebrew. So saying basically like his brothers hated him so much they wouldn't even say hi to him. They couldn't even greet him and say, hey brother. They hated him and would not even speak peacefully. So it's not a good start to the story, right? <laughs> Things are not looking good here between Joseph and his brothers. But it's about to get worse. Joseph has a dream. And he tells the dream to his brothers. And it says that they hated him even more after he tells them this dream. And this dream is they're out in the field. They're, they're binding sheaves together. Joseph's sheaf stands upright. And the others are bowing down to it. So he tells them this dream. And they're indignant. They're like, who are you, young guy? Right? You think you're going to rule over us? You think you're going to reign over us? Who do you think you are? And it says again that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph dreams another dream. He dreams that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are going to bow down to him. Okay? Now notice the progression here that happens in this chapter. First, it's just four brothers, right? It's him with four of his brothers. He tells on them. Then he, go, then he has a dream, and then he goes and, and tells all the brothers, right? And then the next dream is all the brothers and mom and dad. So it's like he's continuing to make more and more enemies. And Jacob actually rebukes him for the second dream, for telling the second dream. But then notice the reactions. This is very interesting. Notice the reactions after the rebuke in verse 11. It says, his brothers were jealous of him. Okay, they already hated him. Now they're jealous of him. Makes sense. But what does it say about Jacob? Jacob kept the saying in mind, okay? Jacob knows about dreams, right? Remember back in chapter 28, the stairway coming down from heaven? God revealed himself to Jacob in the dream and, and told him who he was, right? So Jacob, there's, there's something going on here in Jacob, kind of wondering like, okay, young guy, like, I don't want to totally dismiss what you're saying here because Jacob knows that God is the one who's in control of dreams. So Jacob is kind of like, okay, let's, let's see what happens here. Another interesting thing, God is not actually mentioned by name in this chapter. And God is only going to actually speak one more time in the entire book of Genesis. And that's going to be in chapter 46. God comes to Jacob in a vision of the night in chapter 46, and tells him to go down into Egypt, and he reminds him that I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to be with you. So really, this is kind of, you know, this, this dream here, we kind of know this is God speaking, but the text doesn't say it explicitly, so there's some, there's some interesting things happening here in these dynamics. But the major emphasis, I think, here in this section, and really kind of throughout the rest of Genesis, is going to be what one commentator calls God's secret providence, or God's divine overruling. We're going to see God's hand at work through all these relationships and all these dynamics throughout the book of Genesis. And that is, you know, really in spite of the dysfunction of his people. They're, they're, they're messing things up, they're, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, but God is going to continue to intervene and continue to overrule. I think this is why we really need to read the Old Testament. We need to familiarize ourselves. We need to preach through the Old Testament. And we can't ignore this stuff. Talked about it a couple weeks ago in chapter 34. There's a lot of ugly things 
especially in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of ugly sin. There's a lot of ugly heartbreak with the people of God. But we need to be reminded that God is still good, that God is still sovereign. He's in control despite their sin, right? Despite our sin, God is working out his good purposes. And, you know, sorry to ruin the story, but that's really how Genesis ends, right? In chapter 50, you're probably familiar with it. We'll, we'll get there. But that's kind of the theme here. Again, our big idea is that our sovereign God, in his mercy, rescues his people and restores them to communion with himself. He did it with the patriarchs. He's going to do it in the New Testament. He does it with us. And this is really the whole point of the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. That's why we read the whole Bible. That's why we remind ourselves of who we are and what God has done to save us. I think, you know, if you read through the Old Testament and you don't see your need for Jesus on every page (laughs) because of the lives of the people that you're reading about, I think you're reading it the wrong way. And we need to go to the Old Testament constantly asking, how does this point us to Christ, right? How do we see our need for Christ through the story of these patriarchs? We saw, again, uh, chapter 34 a couple weeks ago. The next two weeks, we're going to have more sexual sin, more deception, okay? You can look ahead, chapter 38, chapter 39, huge contrast there between Joseph and Judah, some very interesting stuff coming up, but the, the drama is not going away, okay? It's going to continue to be crazy. So again, why, do we, why are we reading these things? Why are we preaching these things? Why don't, why don't I just skip over these things? We need to see ourselves in these stories, right? We need to see how God relates to us and how we relate to these people. It's not just the big outward things, right? It's not just rape and murder and all these other things. It's the heart sins, like we're seeing here in our passage today, right? Like hatred and jealousy and favoritism. We've seen this family dysfunction. It's really started in chapter 3 since the fall, and it's continuing on and on. I think for many of us, this week is probably going to be an opportunity for us to stretch our faith. How are we going to react when our past sins are pointed out to us at the Thanksgiving table. Are jealousy and hatred going to be laid at the foot of the cross, or are we going to hold on to those things? Do we feel like our parents and siblings should be bowing down to us? Whether we say it outright or whether in our hearts we think that, is that going on in our lives? Is it up to us to get us out of the pit that we have dug for ourselves, dug ourselves into with you know, ourselves and with our family? Is it up to us? And if it's not up to us, how can we trust God to get us out of that pit? Let's continue in our story. We're going to see how God gets Joseph out of the mess that he got himself into. Pick up in verse 12 and read through verse 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. 
So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I... Where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Our second section here is God gets Joseph out of the mess. And this kind of unfolds in five scenes. The first scene is that Israel, Jacob, sends Joseph to check out the brothers, to see how things are going where they are in Shechem, pasturing the flocks. So he goes, he, he's wandering around, finds the man, tells him where they're at, so then he goes to find the brothers. The second scene then is the murder plot and the rescue attempt. So the brothers see Joseph coming. They conspire against him to kill him, it says in verse 18. They say, let us kill the dreamer and throw him into a pit. Then we will see what will become of his dreams, right? How is he going to bow down, or how are we going to bow down to him if he is dead, right? But Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in. 
Uh, we don't exactly know what Reuben's motivations are here for intervening. Uh, it could be that Reuben was the oldest and it was his responsibility. If they show up back home and Joseph isn't with them, it's his responsibility, right? I think more likely is that Reuben is trying to make up for what happened in chapter 35, right? He's trying to make it up to Jacob. The, we know that the birthright is, is taken away from him and Jacob is the favorite son. Maybe Reuben thinks, you know, I'm in trouble with dad. I'm in some hot water. Like, if I can save Joseph's life and bring him back safely, maybe dad will, you know, like me a little bit more. So let's not kill him, right? Let's take him, let's throw him into this pit, and Reuben has a plan that he's going to come back later, and he's going to get him. This is in verse 22. Notice the language here. Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into the pit in the wilderness, do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. This word here for rescue, we've seen this already in Genesis. It's all, it can also be translated as delivered. In chapter 32, when Jacob is on his way to meet Esau, remember Jacob finally prayed to God for the first time in his life in chapter 32. He prayed that God would deliver him from his brother Esau. And then in chapter 32, later on after when Jacob wrestles with God, it says that Jacob saw God face to face and was delivered. So there's this idea here of God being the deliverer, of being rescued by God, and Reuben is attempting to rescue Joseph. And then restore, restore him to the Father. This word can also mean to return. In Jacob's dream in chapter 28, when he vowed to God that he would go back to Bethel, this is the word that is used, that he would return to Bethel, to come back safely. So Joseph, he would need divine rescue and divine restoration, just like his father Jacob did. We go to the third scene. This is the the sale for profit, right? Right? We see how callous these brothers are. In verse 25, they sit down to eat a meal. Now, there's no record here. We're going to actually see it later on. Jacob is going to retell this story. and He's going to talk about how he cried out for help while he was in the pit. We don't, we're not told that here. But they sit down to eat while Jacob is in this pit pleading for his life. It just shows the level of their hatred toward him, how callous they were to let him sit in this pit while they sat down to eat lunch. And this time, another brother steps in, Judah. Judah says, what profit is it, right? What profit is it if we, if we kill him? We're not going to get anything. We might as well make a buck, right? Let's sell him. Let's get some money out of this. So they plan to sell him to the Ishmaelites, which is interesting because it's their kind of their distant relatives, right? Isaac and Ishmael were brothers, so it's descendants of their grandpa's brother. And maybe they're thinking there's some justification here. Well, hey, we're going to sell him to, some, to our long-lost cousins, right? So it's okay, right? He'll be in good hands. Then we see the failed rescue attempt. Reuben comes back. I don't know what Reuben was doing. Maybe he was going to recruit like a SEAL team or something, right, to come and do this rescue operation. But Reuben comes back and Joseph is nowhere to be found. So what do they do? They have this plot to deceive their father, right? Jacob, the deceiver. And what do they do? They get 
his garments, and they get a goat, right? Where have we seen this before? You remember Jacob going in to Isaac when Isaac is on his deathbed, putting Esau's clothes on, right? Killing the goat and and feeding him. So just as Jacob used a goat and a garment to deceive his father, he here is going to be deceived by his own sons. So we just see this cycle of sin, right, playing out in this deception. It's just, it's crazy. But Jacob refuses to be comforted. He refuses to be comforted by his sons and daughters because he believes that his favorite son is dead. But we come to the end of the chapter, right, and we learn that Joseph is alive in Egypt. Despite his brother's treachery, despite their evil plot, Joseph is still alive. Well, again, as we think about our own lives, our own family dynamics, especially around the time of the holidays, there's probably a little bit of our own stories in this story, right? Whether it's as siblings, whether it's as children, or whether it's as parents. We are all a lot like Joseph and his brothers, or we are like Jacob. We are guilty all around. But God is with us. God rescues us and delivers us from ourselves, right? From others. God doesn't leave us in the pit, though he has every right to do so. There's a, like I said, there's not a lot that's said about uh, Joseph's life in the rest of the Bible. There's a couple of references in the New Testament. One of the, probably the best ones is in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Stephen's speech, where he gives a speech right before he's about to get martyred, where he kind of gives a whole history of the Old Testament and the patriarchs. This is what Stephen says. He says, and the patriarchs, this is Acts 7, 9 and 10, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. God was with him and rescued him. Again, our big idea, our sovereign God in his mercy rescues his people and restores them to communion with himself. That's what we see in Joseph's life. I want to close by reading the rest of the devotional that I read earlier in the, for our confession to sin. Tripp says, A person who manifests a self-reliant recognition of wrong assigns to himself the power to do better and then gives himself to spiritual-looking acts of penance that make him feel good about himself and his potential ability to do better. But while he is acknowledging sin, there is no verticality in what he is doing. By that I mean that there is no Godward confession, no recognition of his desperate need for rescue, and no repentance that is motivated by a heart filled with gratitude for and worship of God. It is an I-can-save-myself way of dealing with sin, and it is far more prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ than we would think. It never results in lasting change. 
It never produces a protective and preventative humility of heart. It never stimulates further worship and service of the Savior. It simply does not work. If you had the power to change yourself without God's help, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. The whole story of the gospel in Scripture is a story of people who are desperately trapped in sin and have no hope except the rescuing grace of the Redeemer. Let me read that again. The whole story of the gospel in Scripture is a story of people who are desperately trapped in sin and have no hope except the rescuing grace of the Redeemer. When your sin is revealed today, which of these two pathways will you take? That is the question that we ask ourselves as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Which pathway will we take? Will we take self-reliance? Will we take self-effort, just trying to be good enough? Or will we say the only hope of the gospel is that God sent his son to rescue sinners like us. That we can't save ourselves. That we are powerless to rescue ourselves from the pit. Just like Joseph was. But God brings us up out of the pit. He brings us to himself. He redeems us through his son, whose blood was shed, whose body was broken on our behalf. So as we prepare this morning to come to the table, this table is open to all of those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. Who say, I was in the pit and I couldn't save myself. God in his mercy reached down and grabbed me out of the pit. He set me free and I am free because of him and because of his grace alone. If that's where you're at today, you're welcome to come to the table. And if you're not there, That's fine, we would ask that you would remain in your seat and we would love to talk to you more about what it means to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. But for those who are are ready, for those who are coming to the table, we invite you to come.